0: Last couple of weeks, we've been talking about living out our faith, living out the fact that we can't lose regardless of the circumstances. And, of course, the song that Ben just sang for us talks about that very thing, living out the fact that we are redeemed and changed regardless of the struggle, regardless of our past and all of that. I wonder how has it been going for you? I mean, this whole Christian thing, the last couple of weeks. Now, some of you have totally forgotten what I preached on. I don't take anything personally by that. I just recognize that maybe I need to communicate it again. I'm going to preach the same two sermons today that I preached the last couple of weeks. So you're going to get a double dime. I'm just joking with you. Um, (laughs) That'd be something, though. You know, there was a preacher one time who, who kept preaching the same thing over and over. He was actually preaching on giving. Somebody came to him after the service. They said, Preacher, you've you've preached the same sermon four weeks in a row. What's going on? You not have time to study? You're just lazy? What is it? He said, No, y'all don't get it yet. I'm going to keep <laughs> preaching it until y'all get it. But I wonder, how has it been going? Two weeks ago, we looked at the fact that Paul kept the message of Christ moving forward regardless of the circumstances. No matter what happened, his, his sole focus in life was to keep the message moving forward. And so when circumstances or people changed or conspired against him, all he kept talking about was Jesus. I wonder how that's gone for you. The last couple of weeks, has the message of Jesus been moving forward in your life when circumstances have changed? When people have not done exactly what they should do by you, has the message of Jesus been what you have proclaimed? Or has it been something else? I, again, not here to heap guilt on you. I just Let's take it back to what we've been talking about. How's that been going? And then last week we, we looked at the fact that, that you can live like you can't lose because you can't lose. Paul said that living means living for Christ. Christ is my life and death is my gain. So regardless of whether I keep on living or whether I die, he says, I can't lose. I'm going to keep on living and living for Jesus and being a benefit to others. Or if God takes me from this earth, I get to be with Jesus. He said, I can't lose. So this past week, how'd that go? Were you Were you free to live like you can't lose? Or were you still holding so tightly to all the things you're scared to death to give up? I wonder how did it go? This morning, we're going to talk about living out what you say you believe. Think back to the last few weeks. Where's the struggle in that been for you? I'm not naive enough to think that everybody here just has an absolutely excited attitude about going out and living out your Christian faith. Now, I think you want to, or else you probably wouldn't be here. You really want to live out what you say you believe, but I know it's hard, it's not easy. You go to work, you're at home, wherever it may be, you're out in the community, it's not easy to live out what you say you believe. Where where is it most difficult for you? Where do you find it easiest? You say, well, sitting right here is pretty easy to live out what I say I believe. Isn't that true? Well, we just have church 24 hours a day. Man, that'd be great. I'd be the best Christian in the world. I'd never have a problem. That's not the way life works, though, is it? Life is not lived inside the church building. Uh, my life, for those of you, this may be a shock. My life is not lived just inside the church building. I realize that, you know, I I live here. You know, I have a little cot over behind the pews over here. And that's where I live. You know, my life's not lived. I get it. It's not. It's not easy. You'll see there on your on your little handout. There's a there's a code that you can scan. Now, I, I was I was considering just having you write some things today, but maybe for some, you just need to debrief a little bit, and you say, you know, I. I I need to take a few minutes and just answer the fact that, you know what, the last couple of weeks has been difficult for me as a Christian. And you can do that completely anonymously. If, you, if you've got that code there, you can scan that with your, with your smartphone or your tablet. It'll take you to a link for sermon notes. And you, can, you can let somebody know. I, I promise you this. I'll get those. I won't know who it is, but I'll pray for you this week. You say, this has been a struggle for me. Maybe you have nobody else you can admit that to. Maybe you've got nobody else that you feel like is in it with you. Nobody's praying for you and you say, you know, it seems kind of funny for me. I feel like I'm texting something in. That's not what it is. That's not what it's for. But maybe you just say, you know what, it's a struggle. For me to live out what I say I believe is not easy. I haven't had much victory. So take some time with that if you need to. I'll give you permission to not pay attention for just a few minutes. How about that? As you kind of debrief and say, you know, would you pray for me in this area? If you got your Bible handy or your handout there. Look at Philippians chapter 1. We're going to focus this morning on verses 27 to 30. Let me catch you up to speed real quick. Many of you have been here each week in our series so far. Some have not. But regardless, let me get us all on the same page as to what we're looking at this morning. Philippians is a small letter, short letter, just four chapters the way that we have it marked in our Bible. From a guy named Paul, who was a, the first Christian missionary. He was radically saved by Jesus in Acts chapter 9. And, and from that point on, he was completely different. He went on three different missionary journeys. And when he went to these different places where the message of Jesus had not been before... He planted churches, and that just means he got a group of people together that had been saved, and, and they started a, a church there in these different towns. One of those towns was a place called Philippi, and Philippi was a really important city. It was on, on, on kind of a four-lane highway, if you will. It connected the eastern part of the Roman Empire to the western part, and so it's vitally important both to the Roman Empire and to the spread of Christianity. This, of course, was before the Internet. So Paul couldn't just tweet or blog about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had to get it to people who would then spread the message through the highways and byways, if you will, during that time. And so Paul went to Philippi and established a church there. And about 10 years later, he finds himself arrested and on house arrest, now chained to a Roman soldier with with relatively little freedom, some freedom to write and to receive visitors. And so he's writing to the Philippians in, in response to a gift that they had given him. They had heard that he'd been, been arrested, and they were concerned about him, and they sent him some financial support. He's writing in one sense to thank them for that. It's kind of what prompts his letter. And in so doing, he's letting them know how things are going for him. So you can picture that. You can see where, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write and say thanks. They've asked about him. How are things going, Paul? Let me tell you how things are going. And Paul, being being always the pastor, the founding pastor of this church, always the teacher, he's going to take opportunity not only to say thanks and only to say, here's how I'm doing, but oh, by the way, let me teach you a few things along the way. I'm not going to take for granted that you already know all this stuff. I'm not going to take for granted that you're living this stuff out. But because I care about you so much, church, I'm going to tell you all this stuff too. And that's that's what we've got in Philippians. So he's already told them how much he loves them. He's already told them that He's praying for them. He's already helped them to see how the message can keep moving forward, how they can't lose. And so this week, we pick it up in verse 27. Look at it with me. He says in verse 27, just one thing. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, working side by side for the faith that comes from the gospel. Not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your deliverance, and this is from God. For it has been given to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. Having the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. Paul's bolstering them up a little bit. is encouragement today. Uh, it, it's a challenge today. He's going to tell them no matter what, no matter what happens, above all, always remember, live out what you say you believe. When you have struggles, when you have pain, Paul writing from house arrest, his whole letter is about living out his faith, joy personified in Paul. Live out what you say you believe. Now, uh, just just so you know, uh, Paul is writing here not to an individual. This is not addressed to one person. Uh, Dear Bill Stinson, let me tell you a few things. This is addressed to the whole church, to all the believers in Philippi, including their leadership, everybody. And so today, this isn't just to you. This isn't just to me. This is to us. This is to all of us. We'll get to more of that in just a minute. Paul says in verse 27, just one thing. Now, some versions... We'll we'll put that a little bit different. You may have a Bible open. You say, it's translated a little different for me. It really comes back to the same meaning. One version says, meanwhile. That picks up from verse 26 when he's telling them that I hope to come to you. I feel like I'm going to be released and I'll get to visit you. And he says, meanwhile, Uh, between now and then. Another version says, above all. That means that even more important than whether I get to come and see you or whether I'm released or not, above all, this is what you need to know. One other version says, whatever happens. To Paul or to them, no matter what, above all, in the meantime, live out what you say you believe. Here's what he says. Live your life in a manner. Now, as I told you, uh, this is a plural thing. I I really, just so you know, I'm not a huge fan of the way that the version that we use on Sunday mornings translates this particular part of it, live your life. Really, you may have another version that says conduct yourselves. Makes it plural, and that's what Paul is talking about. When he says conduct yourselves, he uses wording that talks about being a citizen. Live as citizens. Now, he's writing to the Philippians who were citizens of the Roman Empire. And they had lots of privileges and responsibilities and rights because of their citizenship. So when he uses that language, they would immediately recognize the kinds of themes he's trying to get across to them. So he's saying live as citizens. Citizens of where? Well, they have two citizenships. They have one in heaven and they have one on earth. They are members already of heaven, but they still live here on earth. Both are equally important. So live like you are citizens of heaven and citizens of earth in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. So live as citizens marked by the gospel of Jesus. The idea here is that we believe the gospel, so live like it. You understand it's not enough just to know the truth. The Bible tells us the truth must penetrate our hearts and be lived out, and evidence of change is evidence of salvation. You're God's people, he says, sort of like in a heavenly colony here on earth. Little clusters of Christians were all over the place. These little churches, these colonies, if you will, people whose residency really long-term was in heaven but still lived here on earth, and they lived as a colony in a foreign land. The best way I can figure to illustrate this is to, to draw attention to the Big Blue Nation. You now, some of you, out of God's will, are Kentucky fans. <laughs> you know, I, the Big Blue Nation, of course, it, it suffered some mortal wounds this year. Yesterday, of course, being one of them. You know, I'm I, going to get you at some point. Hadn't talked about it all year long. Waiting for, waiting for the separation just a tad. You know, Louisville just blasted Yukon yesterday and Kentucky falls in not so dramatic fashion to Florida. And But, you know, you can travel anywhere in this country and you will see colonies of the big blue nation. Is that not true? I mean, it is the most popular college basketball program in the country. Now, I say that fully recognizing that it's true. You can go out west. You can go down south. You can go to the north. You can go anywhere. And inevitably, at some point, you'll run into somebody who's a member of the Big Blue Nation. There are little colonies of those folks. They're planted here and planted there, and they're living out their faith in the Big Blue Nation, aren't they? It's the way it is. And you're in solidarity with them. Of course, then there's God's people, the Louisville fans, who <laughs> aren't so well represented, but, boy, we're the remnant. And so, but, you know, that's the way that the Philippians were. He's saying, live like you're a citizen, like your little colony. You've got citizenship in heaven. The Big Blue Nation, it's in Lexington, but, boy, they're scattered all over the place. That's the Christians back during this time. Paul says, live like you're already in Lexington. there at Rupp Arena in your Mecca. Live like you're already in heaven as you live here on earth. That's what he's telling now. He says, conduct yourselves. This is a together, not just an individual thing. You know, I, one, of the, one of the downsides of American Christianity is we've made it so individualized. You know, the great American success stories, you know, the, the rags to riches, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you're going to make it, you know, you against the world kind of thing. Nothing can stop you. And, and you're, your, you know, the, the idea of the self-made person. You know, Christianity has nothing to do with any of that stuff. That's that's foreign to God's people. It really is. There is no such thing as Christianity lived out in isolation. You look at the Scripture. It's always together. It's, It's always within the context of other people. He says, all of you together live in such a way that you're marked by the gospel in everything you do. So this is not just for you as an individual. For me as an individual, this is for all of us, this is Elm Grove, are we living out what we say we believe? Certainly it has individual components, but Paul's writing to a whole church to say, folks together, everybody contributing, live out what you say you believe. Paul goes on to tell them what that means. Some things, not that I want you to walk away and say, well, I'm going to go do this, do that, and so on, and I guess I've checked off all the boxes, I'm good, right in the middle. There are some things to be as a result of living our lives worthy of the gospel, living out what we say we believe. There are five things here that Paul draws attention to. I want to give you, and then we'll close. Paul tells them, verse 27, live your life, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So immediately we know there's a high standard. The gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul summed it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said Jesus lived a perfect life, The life that we could not live, understand that the way that Jesus lived matters. It's not just that he died and was raised again. It's it's also that he lived perfectly. He fulfilled everything that God said we are to be. You can't be perfect, so Jesus was. You, You commit sin, Jesus didn't. And so his life matters. Paul says he lived and then he died. The idea being that God demands punishment for sin. God is angry against sin. You say, God's a God of love. Yes, He is. God's also a God of justice. Equally so. And justice demands payment for sin. And the only payment worthy for sin is a is a sinless sacrifice. Jesus, the only sinless person ever, was able, the only one able, to die for our sin. He lived a perfect life. He died a death that we deserve. And then Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 15 to say he was raised again on the third day. All he says according to the scripture. This this is not some accident. This was predicted to happen. God had it in the plan all along. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a death that we deserve. And he, he was raised again, leaving our sin behind him to give us new life and to show us what will happen to us one day who are believers in jesus that we will be raised again to be with him he says that's the gospel and as a result when that message penetrates your heart and you surrender your life to jesus you are a different person just like the song you're not the same person you used to be now there is a standard the standard is now the gospel of jesus we say we have believed in jesus and therefore we now live as if we have been changed the idea here that paul gives is is to be holy To be holy. We're living in a manner worthy of the gospel, which means that we are to be holy. The idea of holiness here is to be set apart. Now, there's a fine line, I'll tell you. We are to be set apart, but we are not to live outside this world. You realize that as we live as citizens of heaven in a colony here on earth, we are not to isolate ourselves from everything else. That's not the gospel message. Jesus himself left heaven perfection And came to a sinful world and mixed and rubbed shoulders with sinners. He was called the friend of sinners. And it was not a compliment. If we are going to be the people of God, we must be holy as He is holy, but we must not be uninvolved with the world. James would tell us to to keep ourselves unstained by the world, but that doesn't mean that we're uninvolved. You're going to get your hands dirty. But you go to Jesus for daily cleansing to say, Wash me clean. Be holy, he says, but this isn't about more religion. You say, well, if I could just come to church more, I think I'd be holier. Maybe, but I doubt it. You probably just feel as if you're a little holier because you're now doing more of what you think is the right thing. But Jesus says this is an internal thing. Be holy doesn't mean more religion. It means more of Jesus in and through us. And so as a church, we are to be holy in our thoughts toward God and toward one another. Holy in our worship of the Lord. It's a sad thing to see churches just go through the motions of singing songs, isn't it? Nothing holy about our worship. That doesn't mean that you have to have a stern look on your face and be very pensive while you're singing the song. Some of you may do that, and that's okay. If you're truly worshiping and God has brought that pensive look, then by all means, keep it there. But I tell you what, to be holy in our worship simply means we mean it, we mean what we're singing. We're not just getting through the song. Moving on, let me check that off the order of worship there. We're holy in how we respond to one another, holy in our relationships, holy as a church in the decisions that we make, holy in our motives for gathering together. Worthy of the gospel, Paul says, church, be holy. And then he says in verse 27, whether or not I get to come and see you, look at this, therefore, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear that you are standing firm. The idea here, first, is to be holy. Second, as we live out what we say we believe, is to be consistent. When I was in high school, we we had to work on our baseball field a lot. And my coach was obsessed with making the field look as good as it possibly could. And I don't know about you, but there's, there's something really pretty about a really green baseball field. You know, it just looks really good. He was, I mean, he took it to the next level. We worked on the field as much as we practiced, and that's no lie. We were there for hours on end raking and putting sod down and all this stuff. I spent four years there trying to figure out how to get away with not doing anything. And so by my senior year, I had had figured this thing out. What you do is you carry around a rake and you make sure you're aware of where all the coaches are at any given time. And any time there are coaches' eyes on you, you rake. And when they're not, you lean on the rake. I mean, that, that's sort of the, you know, you stand there and they look and you rake. They always think you're doing something. It's amazing. I got away with it my whole senior year. It was incredible. Now I have the chance to work with Murray State. And guess what? They do the same thing. You know, what's interesting, though, on this side of it, they think you, you can't see them. And you know everything they're doing. All those coaches knew I stood on that rake all the time. They knew I wasn't raking except when they were looking. You know, some of us treat our Christianity like that. That uh, well, when the church is looking, when, when I feel like God is looking, or when it's important, or when, when it matters and I'm on rake, But until then I'm just going to stand on it. I'm kind of lean against it, make it look like I'm associated with it, and, and yet I'm only going to do something that once a week when I gather together and I have to smile. Isn't it true that so many of us are inconsistent? in our relationship with the lord this isn't guilt today this is just calling out what really is i'm the same way i I, I illustrate it this way how would we live as a church what would we do if we knew next week jesus himself is going to walk through those doors i mean you talk about a show now we'd put one on next week wouldn't we i mean man oh man we'd we'd get our clapping together you know what we, we we'd probably lift our hands occasionally. boy, you know, it says there in, somewhere in Psalms, I'm supposed to I think. You know, we I mean we we'd, boy, we'd smile, we we man. What if we knew Jesus was coming next? I mean we'd start raking, wouldn't we? We're not gonna be caught leaning on oh here we go. And what if we knew that Jesus was gonna join us at our next fellowship meal or business meeting? But we'd double up. We'd have more fried chicken than we ever had in our lives. That dessert table that's already good would be twice as good, wouldn't it? Boy, I tell you what, we'd start on time at that business meeting and man, we we'd talk about some important stuff because Jesus is here. Let me tell you this. He's already here. He's already here. The question is, are we standing on the rake? Or are we raking? Be consistent, Paul says, whether I come and see you. He's telling the church, look, don't wait for me to get there to live out what you say you believe. Don't do it just because I'm coming to you. Don't do it just because I showed up, just because you know I'm looking. Just because the coach is watching, don't start raking. Rake the whole time. Be consistent, whether I come or not. God's not fooled. By us raking only when he's looking. So we don't have to put on an act. Paul goes on to say, whether I'm there or not, I'll know that you are standing together. So he says, be unified. Be holy, be consistent, be unified. I'll know, he says, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, working side by side for the faith that comes from the gospel. One spirit, one soul, one purpose, working together to see the good news advanced. That's what. Listen to what he wants for, for the church in, in Philippi. He wants them unified together for one sole purpose, to see the message of Jesus Christ taken to those who need it. That's it. We don't exist for any other reason. And for God to use us to take the message of Christ to those who need it. I mean, that's why we as a church gather together and commit to one another. Paul says unity in the church is huge. He knows that this message of grace and love and reconciliation can be made a mockery of if there's division. Isn't it ironic and sad to see churches who say they stand on the message of Jesus, one of grace and love and reconciliation, and they hate each other? Then they wouldn't say they hate each other. Why? Because they smile when they come to church. But you get in those conversations when they're not with those folks. I hate each other. Paul says unity in the church is huge because without it, it blasts the whole message. We have no credibility without it. But but here's what unity is not. Unity is not just keeping the waters calm at all costs. You realize that? I got a pastor friend who went to a church and he followed a guy who who basically just did everything for the church. He did all the ministry. They just kind of got out of his way and said, yeah, yeah, go ahead and do that. That's fine because we don't want to mess with it. And so when this guy took over for that guy, my friend comes in and he says, you know, first thing I had to do was teach them how to argue. <laughs> he said, I didn't know how to express an opinion. I had to teach them how to argue with each other a little bit. They just, well, pastor, whatever you want to do. He said, no, that's not unity. Just going along with things, just keeping the water calm. There's something about peace in the church, certainly, but that the, the idea of unity is so far beyond just getting along with each other. Do we want discord and discontent? No. But that's not necessarily unity. What it is is solidarity in what matters most. And that is that apart from Jesus, there's no salvation. We've all got to agree on that. And that's our unity, that message of Jesus Christ. Lots of things can keep unity from happening. Selfishness, criticism, bitterness, being unwilling to forgive. I think a lack of outward focus can make us... Uh, experience disunity in the church we have nothing that that we're commonly going for you know armchair quarterbacks are another thing that that would cause disunity in the church and folks who sit on the sidelines and tell everybody else how to do it until they ask till they're asked to get involved and no, i don't want to do that you ever been there it's real easy how do we get there how do we get to this point where paul says you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind working side by side we have to sacrifice we have to participate as well. Say that. We've got lots of folks participating, and I appreciate that. Jumping into the ministry of the church and doing all we can. We have to forgive, to encourage, to serve, to work together, to cooperate, and never compromise on the mission of Jesus as our focus. That's unity. Paul says, be unified. How do you live out your faith? How do you live out what you say you believe as a church? Be holy, be consistent, be unified. Verse 28, he says, not frightened in any way by your opponents. That word when he says frightened there means to panic or or have a stampede, to run away in fear. I remember a kid that I played baseball with years and years ago. His name was Matt. And he was the biggest, baddest dude anybody had ever seen in their whole life. I remember one game we were 12 years old and Matt was pitching. And Matt threw so hard that, number one, you were scared to begin with to even get close to the batter's box. But not only did he throw hard, he had no idea where it was going when, he left, when it left his hand. No clue. Man, he could stand back and throw that thing so hard, but he literally had no idea. Now, we played back then six innings, so there were 18 outs in a game. That game, I'm playing behind him. Thank goodness I didn't have to get in the batter's box against him. I'm playing behind him. He struck out 17 of the 18 outs. He threw just enough strikes to where he could get guys out, but he also walked three and hit three. Hit one kid right in the head, took his helmet, clean off. They had kids that were screaming and crying. They didn't want to get in the batter's box, and I didn't blame them. They would literally, when he would rear back and he's getting ready to throw, they'd just start running out of the batter's box. I think that's kind of what Paul's talking about. We see our enemies. We see big Matt standing there on the mound, and we're scared to death by all we see in the world that threatens us as believers. And what do we do? I'm not getting in a box against that. No way. That's coming way too hard. That's too random. I don't know where it's going to go. It's not safe for me to engage with that. Paul says, don't be scared to get in the batter's box. Your opponents have already lost their opponents may have included some of the legalists or some of the pagans or this worldly system they found themselves in or the emperor and his laws and the Roman system and Roman citizens and all of that stuff. And our opponents certainly include lots of those same kinds of things. You think about what we're up against as individual believers and as a church. You look even at our society and how the laws and the judicial system and all the stuff is conspiring, it seems, against biblical truth. What will we do? We gonna run toward the dugout, or are we gonna stand in the batter's box? That's not a pep talk. It's just reality. It's a choice we have to make. Paul says, "Don't panic. Don't run away. Don't be alarmed by your opponent who throws the ball really hard and has no clue where it's going when it leaves his hand. Don't be alarmed by that. Why? Because you've already won. The game's already been decided. Trust God. Keep going." Be fearless, he says. Be holy, be consistent, be unified. And in your unity, you can be fearless because God is on your side. And he goes on to say, this is a sign of destruction for them, talking about your opponents, but of your deliverance, and this is from God. You know what happens when we refuse to back out of the batter's box? We simply give evidence of our salvation, that God is on our side, and we give evidence to those who conspire against biblical truth that they've already been defeated. They cannot intimidate us, not because of how great we are, but because of who we live for. It gives evidence that they're already on the losing side. Don't panic, he says. Stay in the box. In verses 29 and 30, he says, For it's been given to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in Him, but also, he says, to suffer for Him, having the same struggle that you saw I had, and now you hear that I have. So he says, be enduring. He says, you've been given the opportunity to believe in Jesus Christ, and now because of that faith, you now you have the opportunity to join Jesus Christ In his sufferings. He says you can take joy in that though because you know God is using it. He's using it to strengthen your faith, to draw you closer to him. You realize that that it's through the fire sometimes that we must go in order to be refined and to be strengthened. It's through suffering that we as individual believers and as a church come out on the other side different. Isn't that the truth? I'm sure we could give testimony after testimony this morning. You could say, you know what? Let me tell you what I faced. But let me tell you what God did through it. I would never choose to go through that again. Never would I would I think that's something good. But let me tell you the good that God did in it. Let me tell you the privilege that I had to suffer along with Jesus Christ... For what I believe, and yet look what God did through it. Jesus suffered through the cross. It was not an out-of-the-body experience. He truly went through the pain of physical pain and emotional and psychological turmoil and torment. And yet look what God did through the cross. Why do we think it will be anything less than redemption and strength and victory for us when God takes us through our suffering? Look what He did in Jesus. And we have Jesus in us. What do you think he'll do in us through our suffering? He tells them, know that God's using him, but know you're not alone. He says, you've got the same struggle that you saw I had. Remember, they, they had seen him in, in Philippi. He was arrested, thrown in jail, starts singing praises to God. There's an earthquake. The doors break open. All of the jailer and his family all get saved because Paul and, and his friends would not leave the jail. They just preached Jesus to them. You, look, you saw that struggle, and you know the struggle that I'm having now. Paul says, you're not alone in this. It's a great thing about the church. A church will be honest, I'll say that. A church will be real with each other. The great thing about the church is that you know you're not alone in your struggle. You know, one of the things I love about Elm Grove, and I've told you this before, is, is how when, when somebody has a death in the family, our church can't get there quick enough, if you understand what I mean. We we rush to try to help those folks. I love that. Why? Because we know what it feels like. You've been there. You just tell those folks, in essence, look, you're not alone. (laughs) I know what it feels like. I've been there. Paul says, look, you're going through some difficult times. You're going to face some struggles as a church. You're going to have the world conspire against you. You're not alone. You've seen me go through it, he says. You know that I'm going through it now, and I stand with you. You're not alone. Paul wanted the Philippians to be sure to live out what they say they believed, no matter what happened, in all circumstances. And this morning, I I want to get us to the point of commitment based upon these things that Paul has instructed us this morning, the word that we've heard from God. Three areas of commitment. Our commitment, and this is for us, It starts with you as an individual. It starts with me, but it's for us. Our commitment today, threefold, first is to Jesus. What did Paul say? Be holy and consistent. Our commitment to Jesus this morning, Lord, as an individual, I am on my knees before you. God, make me holy. My commitment to you is to be holy. My commitment to you is to be consistent. And on behalf of our church, Lord, I'm going to pray that you'd make us holy and consistent. The first commitment is to Jesus. I wonder, have you made that commitment? On the online notes, you'll see a way that you can also put in the commitment that you're making. I won't know who it is, as I said. But if you put in there, you know, my commitment to Jesus today is this. I'll pray for you this week. Maybe in just a few minutes you'd say, you know, Brad, I need to to talk to you about my commitment to Jesus. I'm not sure where I stand. Or this morning, I'm making the very first time commitment or a fresh commitment to Jesus, and would you pray for me? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Or maybe right there where you are, you just kneel down, or you come up here and you kneel down and get alone with God and say, Lord Jesus, I make the commitment to you to be holy and consistent. I want to pray for our church. first commitment is to Jesus. The second is to each other. Paul said to be unified and to be fearless, you can't be unified alone, and you sure can't be fearless alone. It takes other people to do that. Maybe your commitment is to somebody else. you see, and you know, I've been unforgiving. i I've refused to forgive that person and and I need to go to them this morning or or maybe you say, you no, know, just for our church, I'm going to pray for true unity that God would unify us and make us fearless. And then the third commitment is to the end. Paul says to be enduring. Lord, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what suffering and struggles I and we are going to have to face, but Lord, I'm committed to you to the very end. What's your commitment? What's your response to God and what He said this morning? I encourage you. Don't, don't leave it up here. Write it down. Tell somebody. Send that thing in on that little online form. Come and talk to me. Let me pray for you. Whatever it may be, bring somebody with you and say, my commitment this morning is this, and I need somebody to stand with. And then what's our commitment, church? Will we, every one of us, all together, live out what we say we believe? that God is worthy of our worship, that people need to hear about Jesus, that we are going to join God in His mission of redemption and salvation in the world. No matter what. No matter the consequences, no matter the circumstances, no matter the struggle. We're going to close this morning by singing a song that maybe you're familiar with called, It Is Well. It it starts off, When peace like a river... Or when sea billows roll. You've got two extremes. When things are good, when things are not good. Will you live out what you say you believe? It is well with my soul. Why? Because Jesus is still alive and He's victorious. I live out what I say I believe. Because it is well with my soul come anything in any circumstance. That's my commandment. In just a moment, we'll stand you feel free to come, write down your commitment, talk to me about it, talk to one of our deacons will be down here, pray about it, bring somebody with you. But don't leave here today with it just in your head. Let God do a work in your heart. Let's pray together. Lord, change us, we pray, as individuals and collectively as a church. Lord, make us holy and consistent and unified and fearless. God, make us enduring. We commit this morning to you, Lord Jesus, to each other and to the very end. Give us courage, Lord, to respond individually and collectively to the message that you've spoken to us this morning. Regardless of the circumstances, Lord, may we sing from true hearts that it is well with our souls because you live, because you're victorious. We pray this in Jesus' name.